Today on Bread for the Broken with James Grizzle, pastor of Calvary Chapel, Galveston. Even in the midst of our failure, man, Jesus knows how to show up. And he showed up ultimately in the, in the greatest way possible where he died on the cross for all those fleshly urges that I have inside of me. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Even when it's like, I just can't do it anymore, Lord. I can't do it anymore. And he just knows how to show up. And he likes, just like he did in Esther, I mean, the Jews aren't out of the woods just yet. Even though the bad guy's dead, there's still a law that can't be changed. Are there things in your life that you know that you shouldn't do, but continue to do regardless? Are there burdens dragging you down that you don't know how to get rid of? Well, in today's message, Pastor James wants you to know that it's only Jesus who can save you from yourself. No amount of hard work or discipline is going to stop the desire to dwell in the things that hurt you. Every day is a battle against yourself. Give it all to God and let Him bring you out of the muck and into serenity. Now here's Pastor James in the book of Esther chapter 6 with today's edition of Bread for the Broken. He has the guy, he's like, bring in the records that are all about me. So this attendant brings it in, the history of his reign, so it could be read to him. In those records, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of uh, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door to the king's private quarters. They had plotted to, to assassinate King Xerxes. So you're telling me, of all nights to have a sleepless night, it's this night. And of all pages to open up to, because there were probably more than one book. There was probably more than one book. And at this point in time, he'd been ruling for several years. And I'm sure if he's like any other king, everything was history, right? Write that down. Write that down. Write that down. Well, you just, you just got a coffee. Write it down. I need people to know how amazing I am and how awesome I am at getting coffee, right? Like these guys were so like self-promoting and like they would record everything. But even if it was just one book, you're telling me that out of all those books, he just happens to end up on that one story of how Mordecai saved his life. Years had gone by and years of his rule had gone by. And this guy just so happens to open up to that chapter, so to speak. Interesting how God works. See, he may not be mentioned in this book at all, but he's in this book. You may not feel him in your life, or see him in your life, but his fingerprints are all over your life, all over it. So he opened it up, he's reading, he gets to this point, and then the king, King Xerxes says, what reward or recognition did we give to Mordecai for this? The king asked. His attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. He didn't get anything. Well, isn't that fascinating that he saved the king's life and didn't get rewarded for it at that time which if he had gotten rewarded for it at that time, this would be a non-issue. So what happens next wouldn't happen next. And isn't that encouraging for you and for me when we serve the Lord and you do something and the Lord doesn't do anything for you at that time? Because maybe he's saving it for down the road. I don't know. He sees the big picture. So nothing had been done for him. 
king hears somebody coming into the court, sun's rising or whatever. He says, who's that in the outer court? The king inquired. As it happened, Haman had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impel Mordecai on a pole that he had prepared. Like, he didn't even wait. He's like, pulls up, sun's almost rising. I'm going to get to the king because I'm going to do this now. I'm going to do this now. And so he just so happens to show up at the king's palace at this time. You can't make this stuff up. And this is a historical story. This is not something that you can't fight against this. This not only is documented within the Bible, which is absolutely trustworthy, absolutely trustworthy, but this story is documented in Persian culture as well. It's in their history books. So you need extra biblical sources? Well, you can find them about this story, and you see that, holy cow, man, the Lord knows what he's doing, because Haman just shows up, and he's all happy, right? His happiness has come back because he thinks he's going to kill Mordecai, so he shows up. Goes to the king. The king uh, replied, or the, the attendants replied to the king, Haman is, is out in the court. And the king says, bring him in. So Haman came in and the king said, what should I do to honor a man, love that he does not include Mordecai's name, a man who truly pleases me, right? And so here's big head Haman, right? All he can think about is himself. So naturally he's going to think, well, this guy is, he's talking in code about me. This is cute. Okay. Well, what do I want? Right? That's, this is where he goes next. Haman thought to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? Right? So he replies, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with the royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to Uh, one of the king's most noble officials, and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the official shout out as they go. This is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Two things. What Haman wants the most is to be the king. He wants to look like the king. He wants to ride the king's horse. He wants to be the king. Make no mistake about it. Second thing, he's setting this up so that Mordecai would have to be the guy who leads him around town shouting out, this is what happens when the king honors somebody. He wants it to be Mordecai. He is being very selective in his terminology, and he's trying to direct the king to like one of your most trusted officials. That'd be Mordecai. Mordecai was an official. He was sitting at the city gate. The word already told us that. That's where the city officials would sit. Okay, That's not just a commoner. That's, an, that's a city official. So Haman is trying to manipulate the king into like, oh, get out your best robe that nobody gets to wear, and then let's get your, your horse out and make sure that the emblem is on the horse's head so everybody knows that it's your horse. And oh yeah, by the way, gra- grab one of your most trusted officials and have him lead me, oh, I mean, th- that person around on town. And he should say this one thing. It's, he's trying to maneuver, but here's the deal. Like, I don't care how smart and cunning you are, you will never be able to outmaneuver God, okay? You already lose, okay? It's, you are, Haman's already lost. He's already lost in this, this battle of wits, okay? It's not even a contest. The king replies, excellent. He says to Haman, quick, take the robes 
and my horse, and do as you, ju- as you have just said, do just as you have said for Mordecai the Jew. <sighs> right? Like, oh, that sick feeling in his stomach. He probably wanted to throw up right there. Like, no. Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the gate of the palace, leaving out nothing you have suggested. Make it happen, Captain. Right? He's like, there you are. all right. Hey, thanks, Haman. I'm so glad you showed up when you did. I'm so glad you showed up when you did and gave me that great suggestion. Man, because I really want to honor Mordecai, the Jew. What's fascinating is the king knows that Mordecai is a Jew. The king knows he signed an edict not that long ago to kill all Jews. And I'm thinking, what is happening in your head, Xerxes? What is going on in your brain? Again, I tell you, he's not a good leader. And I am I not apologetic about that at all. He's a horrible leader. He may have had some great advancements and conquered some stuff and all that, but when it gets right down to it, this guy's a terrible leader, and he doesn't even know, he doesn't even realize with his own trusted officials, and as he's reminded that Mordecai saved his life, it never clicks in his brain, oh wait, I just sentenced that guy to death. Whoops. Like nothing. It doesn't, there's nothing. But Haman gets a little slice of humble pie, and he has to do it because the king told him to. So verse 11, so he came and took the robes and put them on Mordecai, placed him on the king's horse. Uh, can you just envision that? Is he's like giving the old boost, right? Like Mordecai's got to step into his hands and he's got to boost this little Jewish guy onto this horse of like, oh man, the humility. I would love, I mean, if in heaven there is like a jumbotron and you can re, like rewatch some of these stories, that's like going to be, that'd be on repeat for me. I'd be like, rewind it back, like push pause right there, push pause. That's awesome. So he's got to help him onto the horse. It says he led him through the city square shouting, this is what the king does for somebody he wishes to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the palace gate, but Haman hurried home dejected and completely humiliated as he should be. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends what had happened, his wife or his wise advisors and his wife said, since Mordecai, this man who has humiliated you is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. That's like crazy. That's like, that's prophecy from unbelievers. They're like foretelling Haman, this isn't going to end well for you. Technically, it wasn't going to end well for them either. Because remember, they're all part of the, the scheming and the planning of it. But they're like, oh, uh-oh, um, I don't think you're going to win. I don't think this is going to go well for you. It says, while they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and quickly took Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. Right? So in the, in the same as he's home, he's bummed out, and they're like, oh, dude, this isn't going to go well. He's probably forgotten about the feast. And so the officials show up, and they're like, hey, man, we got to go. There's a party. Party of two, man. You're, you're on the guest of honor. Like, we got to get there. So we go into chapter 7. Don't worry. This is we'll end in chapter 7. But I like the story. I could keep reading the story all the way through, but I won't. Um, so the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet on the second occasion, while they were drinking wine, the king, the king again said to Esther, tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. You're like, calm down, okay? We get it. Verse three, Queen Esther replied, if I found favor with the king 
And if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. Can you imagine the shock for the king? Because again, this guy's pretty dense. He has no idea what's going on. And even when she says this, he has no clue what she's talking about. He's like, wait, what? Somebody's threatening your life and your people's life? And you're like, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you are doing it. And it, it didn't happen that long ago. I have memory problems, but this guy has like major memory problems, right? Mine's just because of ADD. This guy's like totally clueless as to what's going on in his own house. He's like, he's disturbed by this as he should be. She says in verse four, for my people and I have been, uh, she says, for my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet for that would be too trivial a matter to, to warrant disturbing the king. So she uses the same terminology back to the king that Haman had written up in this mandate. Because the, the order that was supposed to happen was to kill, slaughter, annihilate all Jews. Those are the words were used. And she throws that right back at the king, hoping that he catches on, that he gets it. He doesn't. Verse 5. Who would do such a thing, right? You're like, she just read you the thing that you had Haman write up. And it's your, yeah, you gave him the signet ring and he stamped it. Do you not even know what you're signing? Do you not even know what, that, can I tell you again, bad leadership, poor leadership. If you're making laws and you don't even know what they say, you're a bad leader. You're a bad leader. You just are. You have no clue what's going on or what's coming across your desk and leaving your desk and all that stuff. You're a bad leader. That's just it. I'm sorry, but that's, this is unacceptable. Who would do such a thing? I, this, this greatly disturbs me. Who, who would dare threaten the queen, my wife? And I don't know, maybe she's just rolling her eyes at this moment, which I've been like, oh, dude, seriously. Um, okay, Pictionary time. Let me draw you a picture, Xerxes, okay? No, she's like, she throws it out there. And can you imagine Haman? Because he knows, right? As, as Haman's listening to Esther give this request to her husband, the king, he hears her using those words that he himself used to write up that law. So the, the alarms are going off in poor little Haman's brain. He's like, oh no, I think she's talking about me, <laughs> right? Annihilate, kill, destroy. Yeah, I, those are the words I used. And she points them out. And then here's her brave and bold moment. I mean, she went in the presence of the king. That was brave. That was tremendously bold on her account. That could have cost her life, absolutely. But she also had to make another brave step in calling out this dude to his face. And you all love confrontation, don't you? Right? You're all like, mm, yeah, I thrive on confrontation. I love just calling people out for no reason. Um, I hope that's not true about you. Uh, nobody likes confrontation. And here's Esther's reply. Verse 6, it says, This wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and the queen. Then the king jumped to his feet in a rage and went out into the palace garden. That's when you know you're in trouble, right? You ever have that experience with your parents growing up? Like if dad gets so mad, he has to leave the room. You know, like, oh, I'm dead. I'm dead. Like, this is not good. Like, is he, what's he going to go get? Um, 
Like, oh no, please just come back. Just spank me. Do something. Like, I can't take this, right? The king is so enraged, he excuses himself from the room. It's not looking good for Haman. And he knows this. He knows he's a dead man. He's a dead man. He knows this. So as he is like as pale as can be, he's there. It's just him and Esther now. Haman, however, stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther. For he knew that the king intended to kill him. In despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining, just as the king was returning from the palace garden. So what it looks like is he's assaulting his wife. Because there she is just reclining on the couch, and now Haman is on her. He's like on her, and the king's like, dude. Like, and the king's interpretation of this story, is that he doesn't know that he's been pleading with him, and he's in such a state of despair that he like falls onto her, probably not meaning to, but it doesn't matter. What this king walks in and sees is like, oh, I don't think so. Like, hold on. Like, what do you, what do you think you're doing? Just as the king returned, the king, king exclaimed, will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes? And as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. It's the mark of the execution. He covered his face, put a bag over his face. Not for Haman, that communicated, and he already knew he was dead. He already knew it. Everything was falling apart for this guy. Everything was falling apart. It says uh, one of the attendants, uh, Harbona, we saw Harbona back in, I believe it was chapter one. He's one of the king's eunuchs. And it says it right there. One of the king's eunuchs said, Haman has uh, set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall. Oh, hey, by the way, king, um, just so you know, Haman has already established an execution device right in his own front yard. How convenient. Says it's in his courtyard. He intended it to use to impale Mordecai. Now the king's starting to understand too, of like, oh, wait a minute. He was trying to take out Mordecai. Mordecai just saved my life. The man who saved the king from the assassination. King orders, impale Haman on it. Stick him on the pole. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. And, and this is the beauty of this story, is that even in the midst of living in Persia, and they had the opportunity to go back to Israel. All the Jews had the opportunity and the freedom to go back to Israel. They all had it. Um, there was a portion of them, I think around, well, actually, I don't know the number. I think it was only about 60,000 that actually went back to Jerusalem and to Israel to rebuild. A lot of people stayed behind. Uh, and if I have those numbers reversed, forgive me. Um, but there was, a, there was a, a group of individuals, Jews, that stayed in Persia, Okay, because it probably was comfortable for them. They had businesses established. They've been there for 70 years, you know, for the most part. So they've established, all, you know, businesses and all that good stuff. And, and even if we look back, when the king um, gave Haman his ring to sign that, the edict that went out, the, the people in Susa were, were all disturbed by this new law. Nobody, none of them wanted to see this happen, Right. Um, and it even has like a lot of parallels with what we're seeing in our world today, even with Russia. Again, just there are a lot of Russians who do not agree with what's happening in Ukraine at all. But here's what I know. The Lord knows how to deal with the enemy. Whatever form or shape the enemy comes in. And we know Haman was a bad dude. He's just a bad guy. And he comes from a lineage of bad 
just bad people who were constantly fighting against Israel. From the moment they left Egypt, they were attacking Israel. They were one of the first ones to attack the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. There was always going to be this contention. There was always going to be this battling. And God had told the, the Israelites time and time again, you deal with it. You have to deal with it. You have to deal with it. Well, we don't really want to deal with it. King Saul, horrible king, horrible king, bad leader, right? I talk about that all the time. Very bad leader. Just read 1 Samuel and you'll, get, you'll know all you need to know about King, king Saul. Bad dude, not a good king at all. He compromised. He didn't obey God. And when you don't obey God and deal with sin, it comes back to bite you. It may not come back to bite you, although it did technically for Saul, because, uh, I mean, he even died, right, at some of the the hands of the own enemies that he was supposed to take out, right? Um, And especially within that region where he died, we'll get into it. One of these days, we're going to go through 1 Samuel, and I cannot wait. That's an awesome, awesome story, Uh, just book of the Bible. But until we get there, we're, we're here. But... He didn't deal with it. And so, unfortunately, for, for generations to come later on, they had to deal with that. And there, there's a tremendous lesson to be learned within our lives of, like, just deal with, deal with your flesh. Deal with your flesh. Don't give way to your flesh. And this is a battle we face every single day. Why? Because my flesh wants to do stuff that is ungodly. It is not holy. It is sinful. It's contrary to what God wants me to do and expects me to do. My flesh is battling against my spirit all the time. And if you don't understand that, you need to book, read the book of Romans, okay? Because Paul lays out beautifully the internal war that is happening with you the moment you surrender your life to Jesus. It's what it is. There's a fight, and it's the flesh, and it's the spirit. And, and, and we have to, like, we have to die daily, that's the thing. It's like we have to die daily. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 12. Present yourselves as a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice. That means you crawl on the altar daily, daily, daily. Lord, please take me as a living sacrifice. My flesh is aggressive at times. But man, Lord, greater is he who lives in me than he who lives in the world. But that also applies to this flesh that I battle. But Haman represents the flesh. And when left, when left unchecked, man, the flesh will seek to take you out. Sin always kills. Sin always destroys. Consequences of it is death. I mean, that's what the word says. The beauty is this. Even when it looks bleak, even when it looks like all hope is gone, man, the Lord knows how to step in. He knows how to step in. And even in our lives. And then there, I know there's moments where We've, you know, there may have been an urge or a desire, and we've given in to that desire and all that good stuff. Hopefully, we own it and we repent of that, you know, turn away from those things. But there are moments in our lives where we do give in to the flesh. I mean, that's just reality. And if, man, if, if that's not you, then you need to disciple me because you're further down the road than I am, okay? Even in the midst of our failure, man, Jesus knows how to show up. And he showed up ultimately in the, in the greatest way possible where he died on the cross for all those fleshly urges that I have inside of me. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Even when it's like, I just can't do it anymore, Lord. I can't do it anymore. And he just knows how to show up. And he likes, just like he did in Esther, I mean, the Jews aren't out of the woods just yet. Even though the bad guy's dead, there's still a law that can't be changed because in Persian 
rule. Once the king signs the law, it has to happen. We've all heard the famous words that Mordecai spoke to Esther when he was encouraging her to talk to the king. Who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. It's a great rallying cry. And all of us long for those moments in time when we're right where we need to be to change the world. But don't forget, Esther was in the kingdom for many years before that time. God placed her there ahead of time, and she was right where she needed to be in that exact moment. When you look at your life and wonder if you're in the right place, remember that God placed Esther ahead of time. She didn't know for years why she was there. God has placed you in the exact place that He needs you to be for a future purpose that you can't even imagine yet. Don't let the day-to-day get you down. He's always working. You've been listening to Bread for the Broken with Pastor James Grizzle. Pastor James is going through the book of Esther in this series, and you won't want to miss a message. Mordecai was there to encourage and empower Esther, and we're here to do the same for you in your walk with Christ. You can find today's message and many others on our website, breadforthebroken.com. Once again, that website is breadforthebroken.com. While you're there, check out how you can donate to Bread for the Broken and join us in spreading the good news. Our desire is that our listeners would find hope and new life in Jesus. We hope that that's what you found today and that we'll get to see you again next time here on Bread for the Broken.